Good morning. I'm a little bit disappointed this morning because I was expecting that I would have my last chance of some Colorado snow. I was really, I was watching the Weather Channel all week. I was excited. I went to bed last night fully anticipating to wake up to a white blanket and there is nothing. I'm so disappointed. But nonetheless, it made it easy to get here and I'm excited to be here this morning. Let's start with a word of prayer. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for the chance to talk about you. And as we do, God, we just pray that you will speak something into our lives, that you will tell us something new, and that we'll understand better how to relate to you and how to relate to the world around us, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, there's something special. There's something special about having your first car. You don't forget what your first car was. Some of us were blessed to have a really nice car for our first car. Some of us were not quite as blessed about having a really nice car for our first car. But I guarantee you, whatever that first car was, you were excited to have it. You were excited to have that independence. You were excited to be able to get from place, from point A to point B. You were excited to go hang out with friends with, without your parents being around. You were excited about your new car. My first car was a Honda CRX. It's made such a big impression on me that this is the second time I think that I'm referring to it in the few sermons that I've done here. My Honda CRX, it was not, by most people's standards, a very pretty car. You know what a Honda CRX looks like? Yes, you do. And the thing is, people who drove Honda CRXs, most of them loved them, but people who did not do not understand, because it's kind of an ugly car by most objective standards. My friends would say it was the car without a butt because it looked like the back end of it had just been chopped right off. If you look at a Honda CRX, it's like, there's, it, it's like they were building the car, building the car, looked nice, looked nice, and they just forgot about the tail end and just left it right off. But I loved my Honda CRX. And mine, if I'm honest, was particularly not very attractive, because beside the form of the car itself was the condition of the car itself. You see, by the time I had my Honda CRX, it had been around the block a few times. It was no longer a spring chick. The Honda CRX had some visible signs of aging. The first thing you noticed when you looked at the car was the bits of rust here and there. You know the look of a car when there's some paint that's peeled away and some water that's gotten there and it begins to rust away. But then along with the rust, there were the other places that had been previously patched by someone who probably wasn't quite a professional. And so there was differing colors of patchwork on the CRX, giving it kind of a nice mosaic, in my opinion, but it just looked like an old car. But the worst problems were actually inside the car itself. Um, one of the problems, this wasn't actually an aesthetic problem, um, but the hatch was a problem on the car because the hydraulics had, had quit working. And for whatever reason, even though the Honda CRX is such a small, lightweight car, I swear half the weight of it is in the hatch. If you take the hydraulics out, you lift up that thing, it is heavy as can be. But I was too cheap and too poor to fix it. And so instead, my way of fixing it was I had a, an old stick that I kept in the back hatch of the Honda CRX. And so you lift up the back hatch, and you need to keep it open. You prop it open with a stick. The problem is, is that sometimes, you're busy doing whatever in the back, you're grabbing some groceries, and then your elbow clips that stick, and then poof, the hatch comes down with great speed. It was a severe, deathly thing that could happen. I was always afraid someone would find me in the back of the Honda CRX, legs dangling out, because I had knocked the hatch onto myself, and that was the end of it. I'm only slightly using hyperbole. It was really a serious issue whenever I did that. Um, but also inside, there was the, the upholstery was coming apart, 
not just like it was faded or not just like there were some little tears, but the metal bar in the driver's seat would dig into my spine. I mean, it was an uncomfortable scenario, but I still loved the Honda CRX. And then the highlight, the highlight I think I've told you about before was the water inside the Honda CRX. There was a leak coming from somewhere. I'm not sure if it was the moon, roo- the, the, the moon roof on top or the hatch behind, but somehow water kept getting inside. And in Tennessee, it rains hard. And sometimes when it would rain hard, there would be quite a buildup of water, so much, in fact, that when I would come to a stop, the momentum of the car stopping would send a wave of water from the back, and you would hear it first, the of water swooshing through your car. And then I would instinctively know to, when I get to a stoplight or stop sign to pull the e-brake so I could lift my feet up because there was literally a wave of water that would go underneath. And if I didn't do that, my pant legs would be soaked. It was a broken car. Now, I only halfway jokingly referred to it as the chick magnet. I believe, because I really had a great affinity to this car. Like, I liked this car a lot. I thought it was endearing, all of its flaws. Um, So I called it the chick magnet. My wife will be quick to tell you there was nothing attractive about the car at all, and it had nothing to play in our relationship, because that was our dating time is when I had that car. I take that as a compliment. She still married me, despite the Honda CRX. But I love the car, and there's some, some advantages to having a car like that. You see, if you have a new car, if you've ever had a new car, you'll know that you're going to treat it a little bit differently than I treated that Honda CRX. Take, for example, imagine that we're back in college and I'm driving you as a passenger and you ask me if you can eat in the car. I'm going to laugh at you because, of course, you can eat in the car. Like, what could you possibly do to make the car worse? Eat away. Eat whatever you want. If Dean is in the car and she wants to play with a Taco Bell packet, I'm going to let her play with that Taco Bell packet and it may explode, but it's not going to make anything worse in the car. There's a great advantage to having a car that's broken because when things are broken, you treat them a bit differently. See, if you have a new car and someone comes in and they ask you if if they can eat in the car, and maybe it's Taco Bell again and they get the cinnamon twist out. Have you ever had the cinnamon twist from Taco Bell? There's a couple of bad things about the cinnamon twist from Taco Bell. One is that it seems like they refried packaging foam, right? That's kind of what it seems like they did. Um, But the other thing bad about cinnamon twist is it just brings about crumbs no matter what. They practically leap out of that bag. No matter how careful you are, crumbs are going to go everywhere. If you're in a new car and someone wants to pull out their cinnamon twist, they might have to have a conversation with you because you're in my nice new car. But if they're in the Honda CRX, it's okay because you can't hurt it any worse because we treat things differently once they are broken. Once we realize that something is beyond repair, we begin to become a bit careless about the way we relate to it, which is a problem, which is a problem. Because clearly we live in a place also that is broken. We live in a space around us that is full of brokenness. And I have a feeling that the way that we live sometimes reflects the way that we view the world that's around us. And when we begin to recognize there are things in this life that are broken, we begin to treat it differently. See, there's all kinds of ways that we can look at the world and and we can clearly say the world is broken. We can start with the planet itself, the physical environment that we live in, and we see signs of brokenness. We see signs of strain. Did you know that over the last 60 or 50 years, the population on the planet has tripled? 
tripled. That's amazing, right? Over the last 50 years, the, the population here has tripled. And, and people say that because of this, we're beginning to experience strains on the resources of the planet around us, particularly, and maybe only sometimes, in developing places. And so in developing countries, because of the overpopulation, there becomes, pro there becomes problems with, with things like simple things that we don't even think about, like clean drinking water, because the population has expanded so quickly. And they say when we look forward into the future, by the time we get to the year 2050, we're going to see the population growth continue and continue and continue, no signs of it slowing down. Just as the one example of how we feel the strain of the population growth on this planet, they say because of this, we have about one-third of the planet's population does not have adequate access to clean drinking water. One-third of the planet's population does not have adequate access to clean drinking water. But then when they say they look forward to the projection, they look forward to 2015, 2050, and they see the growth happening, they say by then they would expect that two-thirds of the planet's population will not have access to clean drinking water. And we begin to feel these strains. When we see these realities around us, we begin to recognize there's something that's not right, something that's not the way this place was designed to be. There's signs of brokenness. Because of the expansion, because of what we do as humans, we also have an impact on the place around us. They say that biodiversity is one of our biggest worries right now, which is basically saying that there's different species that we've crowded out. And so the one that we always talk about, of course, are bees. That's been the buzzword in, in America, is that we're worried about the bee population and whether or not that's going to affect things around us. And at first I think that's totally fine because I don't like when bees sting me. So maybe I could use a few less bees. But then they say, but the bees are the ones that pollinate the food and 70% of the food that we eat is pollinated food. We need the bees to be able to continue to be sustainable in the place that we live. So you say, man, maybe things are actually breaking around us. Then, of course, there's climate change. You say those words, you can feel people bristle because immediately we fall into two camps, right? Climate change. Is this human-made? Is this a natural cycle of the earth? Regardless of what it is, we see things happening in the world. We see weather patterns in the world that we didn't expect to see right now. And it makes us wonder, is the planet operating the way it's meant to be? We come out to Mapleton Avenue, we look over to the west, and we see hills that are charred from just a couple weeks ago. And we say, this is only in March. Is this the way it was supposed to be? Are there signs of brokenness around us? Of course, that's just the planet, right? That's even not really the big thing that we talk about when we talk about brokenness. The real brokenness tends to come from the people that are around us. Because you look at humanity and you see, you see violence, you look at humanity, you see deceit. You look at humanity, you see greed. And you see there's something that's not right about the place that we live. Yet at the same time, at the same time, it's also easy for us to walk through life and ignore that, isn't it? Because truth be told, particularly living in the country that we live in, it's easy to ignore the brokenness. It's easy to be insulated from the brokenness. You see, most of us, when we got up this morning, we used a lot of clean drinking water, but we didn't use it to drink, we used it to wash ourselves, because that's the kind of abundance that we live in. We use that same clean drinking water to, to wash our cars, because that's the kind of abundance that we live in. We jumped into our comfortable cars this morning and made it from point A to 
point B, which would be right here, without one thought about violence interrupting our journey, without one thought about our safety, our ability to get from point A to point B, because we live in a place that's insulated in a lot of ways from the brokenness that's around us. And then when it comes to lunch, the biggest dilemma of lunch today is whether we're going to have haystacks or tacos. Because both are equally good choices, but it's a hard choice to make. Do you have haystacks or tacos? We're not even thinking about whether we have food to eat. We're stuck on what food we're choosing to eat. So we can become insulated from the brokenness that's in the world that we live in. But still, even so, I guarantee you, all of us have our own personal forms of brokenness. Because no matter how much you try to insulate your life from the world that's outside of it, no matter how much you try to protect your family from the fears and the pains of the world that's around us, there's no way to escape the brokenness that creeps in. Brokenness comes in all shapes and sizes. Sometimes we're broken by people who have betrayed our trust. Sometimes we're, we're broken by lovers who didn't stand by us the way we thought they were going to stand by us, so they broke our hearts. Sometimes we're betrayed by, by abusers, abusers who break our spirit. Sometimes we're betrayed just in words, words that break our self-esteem, words that break our self-worth. So at one time, one day, we feel that brokenness. And we begin to recognize that things aren't the way that they were meant to be. And we're left with a choice. And the choice is how do we relate to the world that we live in? How do we relate to the brokenness that we dwell in? Because do we treat things different because they're broken? To go back to the car metaphor, if you're driving a new car and you get a ding in that car, you're motivated to quickly take care of it. You want to take it back to the shop. You want it to look nice again. But if you're driving my old college Honda CRX and you put a ding in it, what's the point of spending more money? What's the point in investing more of what I have into this car that already has so many flaws? And you begin to hear that in the way that we talk about the world that we live in. So for a while we may say like, man, I, I thought I was doing so good by, by recycling. People asked me to recycle and I complied, I'm a pretty good person, but now they're asking me to compost? This is just too much, too much of a hassle. Because why? It's all going to burn in the end anyway. So why take care of this place right now? We see it in, in our relationships. You're like someone has already broken my heart, why would I invest back in them again? They're only going to break it again. And so what we find ourselves doing is we treat the broken world like it's broken. And we back up away from it, we protect ourselves from it, we don't want to invest into it because why invest in something that's so messed up already? So counter to all of that is, of course, the creation story. When we go back to Genesis 1, Genesis 1 is a story that tells us that there's a different way of living. Genesis 1 is a story that tells us that the way that we live right now isn't how it was designed to live. The world that we live in right now isn't the way the world was designed to be, yet at the same time, it still calls us into some kind of action. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. I'm reading from the, the Pew Bible here, because I still like stealing the church's Pew Bibles. It's so nice. If you don't have a Bible with you, 
You're always invited to take one of these Bibles. If you don't have a Bible to call your own, you're always welcome to take one of these home. Great Bible. So Genesis chapter 1. You know it well, but it begins like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from, from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters from, that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called the seas, and God saw that it was good. We're gonna pause right here for a couple of reasons. One of which is that I feel like whenever we read the creation story, we have to acknowledge the elephant that's in the room. Because lately, whenever you read the creation story, it's hard not to read it without the overarching confusion, the dilemmas, the, the debates that happened around Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Because when we, when we read Genesis chapter 1 and 2, a lot of us fall into two camps. One of those camps is we, we look at it and we say, this is really hard to reconcile with science. Because of the things that we know today, when we read this, sometimes it just doesn't seem to match the things that we know. And it's not even just the big science picture of the question of, like, does this really match the, the things that science has been studying? Even within the text itself, there's questions that arise. Like, how is it that we're getting to this point where we, we read about day and night and day one, day two, day three, when the sun doesn't even come till day four? That doesn't seem to make sense. And there's lots of these other kinds of questions that are there. And it becomes hard sometimes to read the text without having these questions interrupt the message that the text is trying to communicate. And so the first thing I wanted to acknowledge is that as we're reading this, as we're gathered here together, some of us likely fall into that camp. Which also is to say that when we go to our separate Bible study classes afterwards, and we're having discussions about Genesis chapter 1 and 2, recognize that some of us fall into these, this camp. And these are questions that are good. These are questions that are hard. These are questions that are challenging, and that I think God invites us into. There's a second camp, and the second camp is the reactionary camp where we say, wait, 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 this can't be, we can't question this. This is a literal seven-day creation. This is God's literal word. This is how we interpret it. Now, to this camp, I would say that these are also really good points because there's really, uh, there's really difficult theological dilemmas that come out of veering away from the traditional understanding of Genesis 1 and 2. So if you find yourself, you're falling in a different camp, and you're looking at these people who seem so fundamental and so stuck in the literal translation, recognize there's really good reasons for being stuck there as well. But the problem is, is that no matter what we do, whichever camp you fall into, actually there's a third camp, I should say this. The third camp may be the biggest camp. Third camp is the ambivalent camp. Third camp is sort of like, I just want to pay my bills on time this month, right? And we're not really even taking the time to focus on, well, is Genesis 1 literal? Was it figurative? Is it poetic? What does it mean? 
We just want to pay our bills. We want to get along with our family. We don't want to have a divorce. We just want those kind of basic life things taken care of, and we're not really wrestling with the text. But for those of you that fall into camps one or two, the other thing to recognize is that no matter how much we dig into this text, we'll find ourselves frustrated by it. No matter how much you try to figure out whether this fits this narrative or that narrative, you will find yourself frustrated by it because it was never designed to answer those questions. And, and hear me out as I say that. By saying that, I'm not saying those questions aren't important. And by saying that, I'm not saying that when you look at Genesis 1 and 2, it's, it's, we, it's, it doesn't matter what it says about creation because it does. But you also have to recognize that that's not the point of the text. Because every bit of scripture, even as it's inspired, it's written within a context. It doesn't appear in a vacuum. A lot of times when we treat scripture or we look at scripture, we treat it like it was created in a vacuum, just something that dropped out of the sky. And then as we apply it to our own lives, we ignore the context within which it was written. But scripture is always written within a context. It's always written within an environment. It's always written to address questions within that environment. And so to understand what Genesis 1 and 2 is addressing, we have to understand the environment with which it was created. And to understand that, we have to talk about another creation story, the Babylonian creation story. The Elum Elish, if you're reading the Daily Walk, perhaps you looked into it a little bit, because this is considered by most scholars as the oldest creation narrative out there, the oldest one that's actually written by, by man. And this one's a crazy story. The story goes something like this, and this is a really condensed version, where you have a god and you have a goddess. And the god and the goddess, and of course, these are lowercase g's, they have kids. I don't know what you call baby kids, but baby god kids, but they're little godlets, these little baby god kids that are wandering around. And apparently there's something about the, the dynamics of family relationships that you find with the gods that's similar to that you find with the humans. And these little god babies begin to make quite a racket. They're noisy. They're loud. Parents, can you relate to this? Are kids ever loud? Well, these little god kids were loud. So loud, in fact, that it really began to annoy the mom and the dad god. So much so that they hatched a plan to get rid of them. I hope you've never gotten to that point of frustration with your kids. They hatched a plan to get rid of them, but the little god kids knew of this plan. They heard of the plan, and they decided they needed to defend themselves so they find another powerful god, a god that you've heard of before. His name is Marduk. Right? This is a big Babylonian god. And Marduk is going to fight their battle for them. And fight he does. He destroys the sea goddess, the mom god, and the dad god. In fact, he tears, it's really graphic, tears her in two. And this is how the earth is created. You have the earth created by ripping apart this one god. And half of her becomes planet earth. The other half becomes the sky. The beautiful, heartwarming story, right? But this is how it goes on. There's another god that's fighting for the sea goddess god that's also destroyed. And, uh, and in the mix of all this that's happening, there's another thing going on where gods begin to realize as we're creating this planet, as we're making this place called Earth, it takes a lot of work to keep the planet running. It's a really, you know, really labor-intensive thing. And the god starts to wonder, like, man, am I going to have to Am I going to have to own this? Am I going to have to be in charge of this? That's too much work. So this god Marduk comes up with a plan. And his plan is to create man. He creates man to do the work of the gods. He creates man to be a slave of the gods. He creates man out of the fallen god 
that was fighting for the other gods. So what we see immediately is we see this planet that's formed by a fallen god. We see men that's formed by this fallen god. And men whose only purpose is to serve the desires of the gods around them so they can sit back and live in peace and harmony while men do the dirty work for them. Now, in first case, when we look at the story, it sounds nothing, absolutely nothing like our creation story, thankfully, right? Nothing like the story that we believe in. But at the same time, there's actually lots of parallels to this story that you find in Genesis. So many parallels, in fact, by the wording that's used, like even the very first phrase, in the beginning God created, there's a very clear connection to the same way that the the Anum Elish begins, this in the beginning God created. There's lots of parallels that you find in the way that things are worded. So much so, in fact, that, that there were critics who were looking at this and they were saying, this creation story that you Christians find in Genesis and that you Jews find in Genesis, this can't be original. This is simply people who were, back in ancient days, they were grabbing this, grabbing that, taking stories from other cultures and taking them as their own and then making their own creation story. They didn't even have the creativity to come up with their own creation story, so they stole from other creation narratives around them. To which other scholars then started to look at it deeper and said, no, that's not what's going on at all. What's actually happening is that the pen of inspiration is intentionally making reference to these other creation stories. It creates a unique creation story that's nothing like the other creation story, yet at the same time, it's making very clear, very direct references and parallels to these other stories to underscore the differences that are around them. And what are the differences that we find in the other creation stories to our creation story? One of the big differences is that the world is created good. When God creates stuff, day one, day two, day three, it's good. He creates it again, it's good. He creates it again, it's good. And, and I, don't, I don't know what your thoughts are on what it means when God says good. But I'm, a, I'm, I'm assuming if I say something good, that's a pretty good thing. But if a divine almighty God calls something good, I imagine that's an amazing thing. And it's not just that he calls the planet good that he creates. It's not that he's just saying that this is a good thing, but he's creating it fresh. He's creating it new. It's not simply the remains of the discards of a God that has been discarded with, but he's creating something fresh and beautiful and new with this creation. You see, sometimes I think that as Christians, we have forgotten that God created stuff good. And, and, and sometimes we look at that and we say, well, that's what happened in the pre-fallen nature of the world around us. But is it possible that that goodness continues on today? Even in the fallen condition of the world around us, is the goodness still there? Is the stamp of God still present? Is the book of nature still telling us something about the creator who made the nature around us? Is there goodness in the broken world that we still live in? You see, there's another problem that we sometimes face as Christians. And the other problem is that we've started to, to adopt other belief systems, other belief systems that we look at the material world and we say, the material things that we touch, these things are no longer good. The only good thing is the spiritual world that we live in. And so we start to create this false dichotomy where this is good, this is, this is not so good. It comes from Plato. It's this idea that everything that's physical that you can touch, taste, and feel isn't as good as all the spiritual things. 
The story that we find in creation is different. The story that we find in creation is that there's an intermingling between the two. That when God creates something physical, he creates something good. That when God makes the planet, it's made to be a good thing. When God makes the sun, it's made to be a good thing. When God makes the, the moon, it's made to be a good thing. And when we occupy the place that we live in called planet Earth, we still see traces of the divine around us. It's not meant to say that it's, not, that it's perfect. It's not meant to say that it's not, that it's not broken. But it is to say that there's a, a responsibility that we feel when we look at the world around us. But of course it goes on. Because the biggest difference between the other creation narratives and our creation story is the place that humans occupy in it. Because the place that humans occupy in it is a place that's exalted. It's a place that's almost uncomfortable as we look at what God says, because he says it in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish and over the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. First of all, when man, when man was created, Moses, or whoever you believe is penning these words, is making it very clear. Man wasn't brought in simply to serve as a slave to God's. Man was brought in to be an image of God on the earth around us. Man wasn't brought in to just simply plow the fields and see work as a negative burden that we bear but man was brought in to continue the work of creation in the world around us, continuing to beautify the earth that we live in. See, this is not how we normally look at creation. We normally look at the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2 as God created something and boom, that was it. And then we broke it and boom, it went downhill after that. There's some translations that we look at where they say, the actual words, in the beginning, God created, could just as easily have been said, in the beginning, God began creation. That there was a creation beginning that was starting, but it wasn't finished, even in the perfection of Eden. It wasn't the finished end product. You see it kind of hinted at when you look at the, the beginning of vegetation. You look at the beginning of the vegetation, it's not that God just simply says, let it be there, but it, let it be fruitful, let it multiply. Let the, let the seed-bearing plants bear seeds. Let they, them continue to grow. Let the process of creation begin like planting a seed here in the Garden of Eden, but let it grow, let it fill the earth around it. There's also a belief out there that the idea of a garden gives the idea of a walled-off area and that the creation process wasn't complete on the entire planet. The creation process was most complete there in Eden, but the idea was that, was that man, well, man and woman, humanity, Eve, that as they were to subdue the earth, to have dominion over the earth, it was to expand the presence of the garden throughout the world around them. The creation process was just getting started. Now we've ruined things, haven't we? Because sin entered the world. We have brokenness that entered the world. But is it possible that the creation experience is supposed to continue on today? 
Is it possible that the work that you do actually matters here on this planet? There's this text in Revelation that's kind of mysterious where it says that our deeds will follow us into heaven. What does that actually mean by our deeds that will follow us into heaven? Is it just simply if I do something good for somebody that that God's going to remember that and the good deeds that I did in heaven will be remembered there? Will I do something good to someone else and then maybe they're my neighbor in heaven so they'll treat me better as the heavenly neighbor? What does it mean that our good deeds will follow us? Or does it possibly mean that the things that we begin creating here, the goodness that we create here, the way that we partner with God here somehow has a ripple effect into the new creation that God is bringing down here. Because when you read through the Bible, you see allusions to the creation process constantly, where God is wanting to create something new right here and right now, but he's wanting to create something new that lasts into eternity. So you go through the entire Bible and you find yourself at the very end. The Bible begins with the story of the beginning of creation, and then it ends with the story of a new creation again with Revelation 21. And here at the very end, things are different, yet at the same time, there's very clear direct references to the creation process that took place. There's very clear direct references to this idea that what happened in Genesis was only the beginning, but we see the full fulfillment of it going throughout history to the very end. Everything's the same, yet everything's different. Because you have the tree of life, but no longer do you have restriction to the tree of life. You have free access to the tree of life. You have a boundary area called a city, but rather than people being pushed out of the city, people are being invited into the city. You have a garden in Genesis, but then you have a city in Revelation, which seems to imply this idea that the beginning was the garden, something that was supposed to be cultivated and begun to be inhabited by man. By the time we get to Revelation, when we see a city, we see something that's been fully developed, the full culmination of the Revelation or the full culmination of the, of the creative process that began in Genesis. But here's the thing. It's not that we just simply wait till we get to Revelation. Because we see the creative process alluded to in the gospel. How does John begin? Let's go to John. John chapter 1. Because when John is writing in John chapter 1, he makes no subtle reference to the creation process as he's beginning to introduce who Jesus is, what Jesus' purpose is in the world around us, he makes the very clear reference to Genesis chapter one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See, as John introduces this person named Jesus, John clearly sees him as the creator God. But when Jesus then comes into our world, he's making this reference saying the creation process is still in place. There's darkness just like there was pre-creation in Genesis, but now light is coming into the world. So there's brokenness that still exists, there's chaos that still exists, but Jesus has come in to undo that chaos. And so as Jesus enters into our world, he's creating this new story of Genesis. The first story didn't work out the way that we hoped for, but the second story does. The first story ended with disappointment and a curse. The first ends with surprise and liberation and a removal of curses. 
The story continues on. The creation story that happened in Genesis was never meant to end in Genesis, but to continue on. And it only finds its full completion when Jesus enters into the history of the planet. And so then you get to 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, Paul tells us, because of this, we are all now new creations in Christ. You are now new creations in Christ. Again, another reference to the creative process that happens when Jesus enters into our lives. But it doesn't stop there. When Paul says that we're new creations in Christ, he says that Christ was reconciling the world to himself. But then he goes on to say, because of that, you have now been called to be the messengers of reconciliation. Because of the fact that we experience creation, because of the fact that we experience something new, even in the midst of brokenness, we're told that we are meant to inhabit this place. We are meant to impact this place. We are meant to recreate this place. Is there a new world coming? Yes. Is there a new Jerusalem that's going to be better than we can imagine? Yes. But in the meantime, the creation process has already begun. In the meantime, God started something new within us. And that something new within us begins to impact the way that we treat the world around us. So because of creation, because of our understanding of who Jesus is, it matters how we live. Because of our understanding of who Jesus is and because of our understanding of where we come from, it matters how we relate to people around us. Because of the creation experience that we read, because of the new experience we have in Jesus, life matters. Life has an eternal ripple effect into eternity. And our choice when we look at the brokenness around us is do we withdraw or do we go in? Do we get messy or do we try and stay out of it? Because if we're truly created in the image of Christ, we know the answer. If we're created in the image of the one who came into our world, who got dirty in our world, who suffered the consequences of being here on our planet, then we have no other choice but to follow his example and be image bearers of the Son.